All right, at this time, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word. So if you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 9. We're going to be continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians. And last week, we went through the first part of chapter 9 together, verses 1 through 14. And today, we're going to pick up where we left off by looking at verses 15 through 23 together. Our passage today continues Paul's discussion from last week on how we think through what is the proper use of our rights as Christians, or you could say our our liberties. Paul's main application for the Corinthians from last week was that they do not hold on to their Christian liberties too strongly. And he illustrated this point by setting up a strong case for his own right to receive financial compensation for his ministry to the Corinthians, only then to go on to say in verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of any of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And Joel pointed out that what Paul is saying here is this, I am willing to give up anything to promote the gospel to those around me. And as we're going to see in our section today, Paul is going to continue illustrating this principle while at the same time broadening the scope of his application to cover evangelism as well. So let's go ahead and read verses 15 through 23 together. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 15 through 23. But I have made no use of any of these rights Nor am I writing these things to you to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things, to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, illumine our hearts to understand your word, to understand what Paul is teaching through his own example here and to apply it to our own lives, Lord. And in all of it, I pray that you would just help us to, uh, Lord, love our Savior more and live more for the gospel together. In Jesus' name, amen. It's almost always the case 
That wrong behavior stems in some way from wrong thinking. For instance, when my younger brother Dan was four, he had a very wrong idea about how soap is made. I have seven brothers and sisters, and so you can imagine that the soap dispenser in the bathroom of our house would get low and go empty all the time. And uh, we started noticing that instead of the soap running out, when we would go to use the soap, uh, it would be full of like mostly water and a little bit of soap at the bottom. So you'd go and, you know, use the pump and your hand would fill with this like sudsy water. And nobody knew what was going on. It was a real mystery to the family until one night my little brother Dan came to my dad and he said, Dad, I figured out how soap is made. My dad said, okay, well tell me how soap made. And he goes, so when you fill the soap dispenser with water in the morning, it turns into soap. And my dad said to him, and you know what happens while you're sleeping? Mom goes and dumps all the water out of the soap dispenser and fills it with more hand soap. <laughs> now, as funny as that is, we all know that often that behaviors that stem from wrong thinking aren't funny at all. I mean, in the development of modern medicine, there have been innumerable instances where wrong thinking about how the body works led to mistreatment of the patient um, and their medical conditions, and this often had tragic results. I've chosen not to give any medical illustrations this morning, because I don't know about you, but I'm still recovering from Joel's, or Jason's tapeworm illustration from you know, several weeks ago. But the principle still stands. And as we think about that, and we look at this passage this morning, we see that Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church see how they're thinking wrongly about their rights. And this wrong thinking is leading to behavior that's lacking in love for others. Paul's showing them that by insisting on exercising their rights in all circumstances without consideration to those around them, they're not only creating stumbling blocks to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, which we saw in chapter 8, but they're also at risk of creating barriers to their gospel witness as well. And friends, what Paul has to say to the Corinthian church, we need to hear for ourselves today. And what I trust we're going to see as we study this passage together is that Paul is showing us a better way. His, he's showing us that our freedom in Christ compels us not to become stalwart defenders of our rights, or you could say of our liberties in all circumstances, but rather it frees us to choose to surrender these liberties at times for something greater, for the joy of seeing others come to Christ. And what I trust we're going to see as we study this passage is this. Freedom in Christ propels us to resign our rights for gospel reward. Freedom in Christ propels us to resign our rights for, gospels, for gospel reward. And Paul's example is going to show us this in three ways this morning. First, through the practice of resigning rights. Then through the purpose of resigning rights. And lastly, through the prize of resigning rights. Let's look at point one together, the practice of resigning rights. To understand what Paul's saying at the beginning of this passage, we need to first remember the context which he's writing into. It seems that it was common 
in the city of Corinth to, for orators to make their living through the support of their followers. People that liked their message would make financial contributions, and this allowed them co to continue to support themselves in their teaching, kind of like a podcaster who's able to get funded and do it for a living through his Patreon su subscribers. And the concern that Paul addressed in verse 12 that we saw earlier is that if he were to receive financial compensation from the Corinthians, though it would have been his right to do so, it would open him to the accusation that his motive for preaching the gospel uh, was not for the gospel's sake. Some might say, he doesn't really believe what he's teaching. This message he's trying to give me, it makes me feel good, and he's just trying to make me feel good so he can line his pockets. Well, similarly, as we look at the beginning of this passage this morning, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians would misunderstand the point he's trying to make and think that he's making this argument only to, as a subtle way of getting support from them, even though he said that he doesn't want to. You know, he's trying to protect himself from someone saying, all right, Paul, we get it. You have the right to financial compensation. You don't need to ask. We're going to go ahead and give financial to your ministry. And this passage starts by Paul wanting to make it clear that he's deadly serious about not claiming this right. And that for him, it's actually a matter of boasting. So let's look at verse 15 again. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What does he mean by boasting? Boasting often carries negative connotation for us today. But we've seen Paul use this phrase a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. And he's made it clear that there can be a good kind of boasting. A boasting that is rejoicing in what God has done. And we see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 through 31. As Paul reflects on the amazing truth of the gospel, he says this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul was convinced that this particular practice, not receiving financial compensation for his ministry, would lead to greater boasting in the Lord. In other words, to greater rejoicing in the transforming power of God on his life. And the big reason he gives us to further make it clear is not only that he's preaching the gospel not for his own financial gain, but he's also not preaching it out of sheer obligation either. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. He said, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul says here that simply preaching the gospel does not fully express his commitment to the message because he must preach the gospel. Remember that before his conversion, Paul was a vicious persecutor of the church. And Jesus himself miraculously stopped Paul in his tracks and dramatically converted him. 
And through his conversion, God had made him a steward of the message of the gospel. And so he feels bound by obedience to Christ to preach it. But he wants to make it clear that he preaches not out of mere obedience, but that it is his delight to preach this gospel. That he's all in on the gospel message. And for him, surrendering his rights was a way to make it plain and to remove any accusation that he's preaching from any ulterior motive. To show that preaching the message of the gospel is its own reward. And so he says in verse 18, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, and so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I really love the way that Bruce Winter in the New Bible Commentary sums it up. He says, In a society where personal advantage, even civic benefactions, was always accepted as a motivating factor. Paul's advantage was seeing the unique gospel of free grace being offered without cost to its hearers. His action demonstrated the very character of his message. He would not claim his rights. Friends, Paul's example compels us to ask a question of ourselves. What is motivating your evangelism? I think for many of us, when we think about sharing the gospel, we can find our motivations are often self-focused. If you're at all like me, the simple mention of the word evangelism can bring up feelings of guilt, awareness of our shortcomings, and fear of how people are going to respond. I can become acutely aware of my own weakness and my own failures in this area and how I need to be doing a better job of sharing Christ with my neighbors and coworkers. And in that, it brings a temptation to be more motivated to do evangelism out of a desire to absolve my own feelings of guilt instead of being fueled by God's love for the people around me. Friends, Paul is showing us a better motivation. He's bringing us to the delightful truth of the message of free grace and saying that to share this message without obligation, whether it's the obligation of assuaging our own feelings of guilt or any kind of unhelpful motivation or ulterior motive, this all, it leads to the joy of being able to boast in Christ as we see him work through us to be able to find joy in what he's done in our lives and to rejoice in what we see him do in other people's lives as well. And this leads us to the next point, the purpose of resigning rights. In the next section of the text, Paul shows us that the purpose in surrendering his own rights is so that he can reach as many people as possible. His goal is to bring the gospel across all cultural boundaries. Look at verse 19 with me. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. The language Paul is using here for the word servant has the connotations of making himself a bondservant. He's saying, Although I am free from any obligation to others, I have reduced myself to being a bondservant to others so that I can win more people to the gospel. Theologian Matthew Henry put it this way, Paul 
made himself a servant that they might be made free. In what sense does Paul mean this? Well, from the example he gives us next, it seems that Paul was willing to abide by certain cultural practices and norms within the context that he was ministering to so that he would more effectively reach those people. This involved him being willing to put himself under the restrictions of ceremonial law when ministering to the Jews and to remove these restrictions when ministering to non-Jews. Let's take a look at the specific examples he gives us of this in the text. First in verse 20, he says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What Paul is saying here has remarkable implications for how he perceived his own identity in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. At this point in history, there was a sharp divide between the Jews, those under the law, and the surrounding nations, those not under the law. The Jews were separated from the surrounding nations, not only through their religious beliefs and moral and ethical practices, but also through their application of the ceremonial law, or the law of Moses, as we heard this morning in uh, Acts 15. And this included the practice of circumcision, adherence to certain dietary restrictions, as well as specific religious observances, among other things. And there are even indications in the book of Acts that it was thought at the time that it was unlawful against the ceremonial law for Jews to associate with or eat with people outside Judaism, Gentiles. Now remember that Paul is himself a a Jewish and prior to his conversion was a Pharisee, a sect of religious leaders who had some of the strictest adherence to the ceremonial law. Prior to his conversion, Paul's very identity and his perception of approval by God was bound up in how he followed the ceremonial law. But now, Paul sees that Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law and that his approval before God wasn't bound up in his own personal performance, but in Christ's fulfillment of the law and substitutionary sacrifice for his sin. This is exactly what we saw in the scripture reading passage this morning in Acts. And because of this, Paul sees that his identity isn't bound up in his own ethnicity or even in his own adherence to cultural traditions, but instead his identity in Christ allows him to take on or put off the Jewish lifestyle for the purpose of reaching those living under it. And similarly, Paul sees that he's free to take off this lifestyle in order to reach non-Jews. Look at verse 21 with me. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In the same way Paul took up the lifestyle of Jews in order to reach them, Paul was just as willing to not adhere to the ceremonial law so that he could reach the Gentiles. What does he mean here when he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ? Understanding what this means brings us some very helpful clarifications for what Paul is and is not saying about his willingness to adopt his cultural context. 
First, when he says not being outside the law of God, he seems to be clarifying that he is not adopting the moral or ethical practices of the Gentiles. He's not excusing immoral or sinful behavior with the excuse of, I'm just trying to reach non-Christians. But second, what, do you mean, what does he mean by uh, not under the, uh, being under the law of God and under the law of Christ? Now, there's some debate over what exactly this phrase means, but it would seem to indicate the call of the Christian to love others with a Christ-like love. So, for instance, Paul uses a similar phrase in Galatians when he's speaking of using our freedom in Christ to love one another. So in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law of God is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul goes on to say in the next chapter, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This love compelled Paul to be willing to give up his own cultural preferences and comforts and norms so that he would be able to remove obstacles from the gospel being heard. This, even to extend himself out into how, he, this, uh, this even extended itself into how he related to those who had a weak conscience in particular areas. Similar to what we saw in chapter 8, Paul says in the beginning of verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. So if we take this all together, we see Paul freely and willingly lays down his own Christian freedom from adherence to ceremonial law in order to reach the Jews. He lays down his own ethnic identity as a Jew in order to reach the Gentiles. And he even lays down his own Christian liberties to be able to reach those that have different uh, theological convictions than he does. And I, I love the way Andrew Nassily in the ESV Expository Commentary summarizes what Paul is showing us here. He says, Christian liberty for Paul is not... I am free to do whatever I want. Rather, it is, I am free to flex for the sake of the gospel. Paul sums up this practice and the purpose of it at the end of verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul's commitment to reach as many people with the gospel as possible, was so strong that he was willing to flex his own cultural identity in order to reach beyond normal cultural boundaries and bring people to the gospel. He would immerse himself into their culture so that he could make the gospel comprehensible to them. And we see from elsewhere in scripture that this didn't just impact how he behaved, but it also impacted how he presented the gospel in different cultural contexts. Paul never changed the message of the gospel, but he would change his presentation. He would contextualize it in order for it to be more comprehensible to his listeners. If you want to see what I'm saying, do yourself a favor and read Paul's gospel presentation to the Jews in Antioch in Acts 13 verses 13 through 43. And then immediately after that, go and read his gospel presentation to the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. 
When he's speaking to the Jews, his presentation is immersed in the Old Testament and the scriptural proofs that Jesus was the Messiah. But with the Greeks, his presentation springboards from their own pagan statements of who they believed God to be. Yet both presentations do not compromise the gospel message. Both call Jews and Gentiles to repentance and point them to Christ and the fact that he was raised from the dead as proof of his identity as the Savior. Friends, as we consider Paul's examples here, it gives us important implications for our own cultural context. First, we need to ask, who are we reaching as a church? Paul started off in verse 19 saying that he hopes to win more of them, and he ends in verse 22 by saying that he has become all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. And within this, there's a warning here for our church culture. If we hold too tightly our own cultural convictions, we will end up setting up barriers to who comes into our doors and who stays. And what's scary about this to me is that we still might reach some people. And in doing so, we might be deceived into thinking we're succeeding in reaching all people. But at what cost, church? At the cost of creating unnecessary barriers to the gospel for others that ultimately drives them away. And so my friends, how strongly do we hold to secondary issues and the need for cultural conformity within the church? Are we gravitating towards those around us who have similar habits and convictions as us because it's comfortable? Are we making too much of agreement on secondary issues of education, political opinions, cultural engagement, Christian liberties, etc., at the cost of loving and reaching all people with the gospel? Oh, friends, may this not be so of us. God's desire for us is not that we would be a church club full of people with the same opinions on every little thing, but that we would be a people united under Christ as a mission center to those who don't know him. Uniting our desire with his desire that people from every nation and every tribe and tongue would come to know and love and follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, are we willing to follow Paul's example and be okay with making ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of reaching people with the gospel? Friends, let us examine ourselves and pray that God would help us to avoid what is most comfortable to us in this area. Second, we need to recognize that in order to follow Paul's example here, we need to know non-Christians well enough to know how to reach them. This means we need to love people by befriending them and being a part of their lives. We need to spend our time and energy listening and understanding people so that we can do our best to communicate the gospel in ways that are understandable to them. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of an example in, in my wife Mary's life of a friend of ours that we had and, and a way that she was able to present to the gospel to her a few years ago. When we were pregnant with our first son, Dietrich, we attended a birthing class together and we had the opportunity to get lunch with another couple in this class and we really hit it off with them. We ended up hanging out with them a number of times over the next few years. And one of those times, Mary and the other mom got dinner together. Uh, they went out together. And during their conversation together, 
uh, she shared with Mary her deep anxiety about the idea of her children dying. They had a boy and a girl at this point. And this fear for her was so real and so acute that she was losing sleep at night over it. She would go to bed with her kids to make sure that she would get as much time as possible with them. And by God's grace, Mary listened to her, but she also had the chance to share with her about how Mary's hope in Jesus meets her in fears like this. Mary was even able to share about how we had suffered through a miscarriage before Dietrich and how the hope of the resurrection had helped bring Mary comfort in the sorrow that followed. This didn't lead to a dramatic conversion or anything, but I think it's a great example of what this can look like. Third and finally, we need to remember that no matter what we do, the results are ultimately up to God. Paul was willing to become all things to all men that by all means he might save some. Some. Ultimately, Paul was not the one who could produce results. He knew that changing people's hearts is something only God can do. So for us, we don't have to be paralyzed from sharing the gospel until we find the perfect words. And we don't need to think that if people don't come to faith, it's because our words weren't good enough and weren't persuasive enough. Instead, we need to ask God for help and for words, and we need to give it our best effort, empowered by his spirit that he has given us. And then we need to see what God will do. Friends, let us be faithful to do our part and entrust the results to a faithful God as we share with others. Now let's move on to our last point, the prize of resigning rights. Paul concludes this section by reminding us of why he is willing to do all of this. The end of verse 22 says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And then in verse 23 he says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Everything about how Paul had chosen to live how he had chosen to surrender his rights, how he had chosen to reach out to others, it was all motivated by a singular focus on the gospel. And why is he doing all of this? That he may share with them in its blessing. What is this blessing that he's talking about? It's the blessing of seeing others come to know Christ. It's the blessing of seeing someone experience the life-transforming forgiveness and peace and joy of following Jesus Christ. And for that blessing, Paul is willing to give up his own preferences and his own comforts to experience a far superior joy. I love the way Bruce Winter sums it up. He says, those who habitually orientate their life to share the gospel are those who experience most its refreshing freedom as they see it liberating others. 
Friends, what Paul is showing us by his words and by his example is that when we shape our lives around the gospel and are willing to lay down our own preferences and comforts in the hope of bringing others to Christ, we get to experience a joy far surpassing anything we would experience otherwise. We're giving up something temporary to gain something eternal. And friends, isn't this worth it? Isn't it worth being made uncomfortable so that we can see others come to faith? Our time on this earth is so short. When the Bible talks about it, it talks about a thousand years being like a watch in the night. It's a few hours. So if a thousand years are like a few hours, what is our life in the grand scheme of eternity? But friends, as we look even within this book, in 1 Corinthians, you can see at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about how driven he is by the hope of the resurrection. And he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I suffering in the way I'm suffering? Before him ever and always was the reality that every single one of us has an eternal soul. Friends, Every human being that you have ever come across that is created in the image of God is made for eternity. And in this short span of life, we know through the teaching of the Bible that the, the consequences of the decisions we make will carry through into eternity. For those that trust in Christ, it means life and joy, and we thank God for that. But for those that are not trusting in Christ, it means eternal separation from God. Are we willing to suffer momentary discomfort, momentary pain for the sake of seeing others come to eternal joy in Christ? And friends, if you're here today and you're not sure what you believe, if you're here today and you know that you're not a Christian, first of all, I'm so happy and I'm so honored that you're here. And I want to tell you that if the Bible is true, what it teaches is that we will live forever. That when we die, it's not the end. But the decisions that we make today do carry through. But also the Bible teaches that he is seeking out after people to save them. Romans says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are condemned in the same way. I don't stand before you as any greater than anyone else. But Jesus sought me out and he saved me. And if you talk to every believer in this room and you hear their story, you're going to hear two things. You're going to hear a very different story of how they came to Christ. But you're going to hear the same message and the same saving faith. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus died for sinners that all those who come to believe that he died for them will be saved and will be raised from the dead on the last day. That is the hope that we have, and it's the hope that we share with others. It's the hope that we pray that we would be able to communicate in an understandable way. But ultimately, this hope is bound up in what God will do and in God's seeking out. In the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul summarize this entire section with these words in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He's going to sum it all up by saying this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Friends, everything that Paul is teaching here by word and example, he didn't make up. 
but rather he's imitating the example of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, regularly crossed cultural boundaries to reach the lost. He associated with the religious elites and with tax collectors and sinners. He made time for inquiring young rulers and for enthusiastic children. He traveled through Samaria to have a conversation with a woman at a well when others would always take the trip around. This Jesus is the one who had the power to heal with a word, but we see in the Gospels that he would often bring healing in the manner that, was, that communicated a unique care to the individual. Like in Mark 1, verse 40 through 45, where he heals a leper. Jesus doesn't just heal him with a word, but he heals him by touching him. In human terms, reaching, risking his own health to communicate love to this leper. This Jesus could confound the religious scholars of the day with his scriptural knowledge and theological understanding, but then he would go to speak to the crowds with stories and parables, bringing these deep theological truths to be understood by common people. This Jesus had the right to speak in his own defense at his trial, but he remained silent. Though he was innocent, he gave up his rights and his very life, allowing himself to be put to death on the cross to save the guilty from their sin, to save you and me. Friends, let us marvel this morning at our Savior. Let us follow his example. And let us willingly lay down our comforts and our rights and give our lives to share the freedom of the gospel to those that do not know him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.